Welcome to the Kaiju Transmissions Podcast. I am Kyle Bird. And I'm Matt Parmley. And we are back. And um, it's been a while since we uh, talked about a Harryhausen movie. So uh, we are going to do a deep dive into the Valley of Guanji from 1969. Um uh Matt, had you seen this movie before uh before this? Yeah, man. Okay, good. I just remember, you know, I know that uh you're not quite as acclimated with the Harryhausen filmography, but Guanji's yeah, a good I, uh Monster Vision. Oh yeah. TNT's Oh, I yeah, feel like this yeah, yeah, I feel like this this used to get a lot of cable play in the in the nineties for sure. Um God, I I don't know. Now I'm getting nostalgic for when I don't know when you had cable and you would stumble across a movie like this on like a TNT or whatever. Uh, I feel like the only channel now that would show this is TCM, which is uh, about to die. <laughs> yeah, v- very depressingly. Uh, it's like the only one of the only good channels left, and uh, there we go. Yeah, it's uh, it's a shame that like streaming, we're like, oh, everybody cut the cord, get rid of cable, and now we're like paying more for streaming. And if you want to watch know, everything, you're basically paying more than cable now. I know, I know. I I kind of just wish it was simple again. Um, we're old. That's called getting old, bird. That's what we I are know, now. I know. Yeah, I just I just turned thirty eight. It's messed uh. up. <laughs> happy, birth- happy birthday mine's in two weeks yeah so um so uh valley of guanji i don't know uh this this is a movie that has quite a bit of uh history behind it because it was almost made in the 40s um by willis o'brien and um as we have discussed many times uh, this man's life was basically a constant disappointment, um, both with work and outside of work. Um, and so uh, uh, the history of Guanji uh, has some of that. Uh, now, um, before we get into it, I just want to set a record straight. Um, when you look up the, the making of you know, O'Brien's Guanji, you know, or didn't get made, but the history of it, um, P. 
people bring up two other projects um, as if they're all the same. Uh, now, uh, but uh, co- contrary to popular belief, this is even on the Wikipedia page. So, you know, once again, Wikipedia, uh, you need to double check anything on Wikipedia <laughs> almost. Um, uh, Wikipedia says that uh, this was uh, a story called Valley of the Mists and in in O'Brien's original version. That's not true. Um, other there's other people that say um, there was okay there was a, a movie called uh, The Beast of Hollow Mountain in the fifties, which was another dinosaur western. And uh, O'Brien had written the story for Beast of Hollow Mountain. Uh, he sold it to the Nassers, who made the film, uh, promising that O'Brien would get to do the animation. Uh, because he's Willis O'Brien, he was not able to do the animation and the movie, in addition to just being bad, the animation isn't very good either. Um, so uh, Beast of Hollow Mountain was a project that he kind of sold and was taken away from him. Uh, now Valley of the Mists was another project. Um, uh, some other titles for it are The Boy and His Bull, which or uh, uh, Emilio and the Bull. These are titles that you often see it referred to. That was also a separate project, um, and that was more. Uh, that was about um, uh, a kid, basically uh, uh, named Emilio, uh, in a kind of uh, lost world dinosaur uh, 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 setting. You know, in in uh, uh, discovering a hidden valley populated with dinosaurs, and so at least there, uh, for with both of these, with that having the dinosaur valley and Beast of Hollow Mountain having the cowboys, you can see how people might assume that they turned into Guanji at some point. Um, Emilio and his uh, and and his bull was um, uh, uh, sold to the King Brothers uh, from the Nassers, who made. Hollow Mountain, um, and uh, kind of just sat around. And then the King Brothers hired uh, Dalton Trumbo to write a story called The Brave One, um, which would not have dinosaurs, but would be about a boy and his bull and have some similarities there. Um, so the another, another thing that just uh, fell out of O'Brien's hands and uh, just didn't happen. Um uh, so, uh, there's two disappointments, um, for, for that man. Uh, so, just to set the record straight, Guanji, Valley of the Mist, a.k.a. Boy and His Bull, and Beast of Hollow Mountain, three completely separate projects, three completely separate stories that O'Brien had worked on, um, and, uh, three things that, uh, in some way or another screwed him over, um, the boy and his uh, bull was eventually turned into an all-animated stop-motion short called Emilio and His Magic Bull that was about 45 minutes. Um, that wouldn't be until uh, um, the 70s, um, and it played like once or twice and has never been seen since, so that's more or less a lost film at this point. Um, anyway, um, so with that out of the way, talking about Guanji. You have to go back to yet another disappointment disappointment for O'Brien. Um, I know this poor man, right? Every time we we do any podcast about him, it's like never happy. He just makes or, me sad. Like he just sad. Um, 
So uh, we got to go back to 1939. Um, one project that we've discussed a few times on here was uh, one called War Eagles, um, which O'Brien was uh, going to work on. Um, Marion C. Cooper would produce it. Um, we always talk about that as being something that sounded really cool. That was more or less a World War II era kind of propaganda film. Um, that uh, it was a fantasy movie about um, this lost Nordic civilization that gets discovered. Um, that ride around on giant birds and they fight dinosaurs and eventually, you know, in the third act of the movie, they come to New York and fight off, you know, a Nazi invasion in New York. Um, there's art for this thing um, that you can find. Uh, uh, there was even some test animation, I think, done, which is now lost. Um, but uh, it just sounds awesome. <laughs> um, I know the script has been published multiple times, and even the rights to that one, of all the dozen, like dozens of bajillion O'Brien projects that didn't get made, that's one that like every now and then someone will buy the rights to it and try to get it made. It never happens, but um, that's one that, I don't know, that, that's got to be one of my favorite, uh, I guess, unmade projects, especially from O'Brien. Um, Anyway, um, I think, uh, yeah, after the Nazis invaded Poland, I think, uh, Marion C. Cooper um, re-enlisted in the, 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 the military and, um, you know, went off to World War II. Um, you know, he was the big, big producer at RKO that was really guiding that thing, and then, you know, that got canceled, left Obi again without a project. Um, such is uh, his life and career. Um, after that, um, he was produced, or he was uh, approached by a producer named John Speaks, who had formed a, a, a company, Colonial Pictures. Um, he'd known O'Brien because uh, he was a production assistant on um, Cooper's film Last Days of Pompeii, which O'Brien had worked on, um, as well as a film called The Dancing Pirate that O'Brien did some uh, some some visuals and matte paintings and things for. Um and they came up with a story called Bambula in May of 41. Um, the title was changed to Guanji uh, because Bambula was the name of a musical uh, from the 20s. Um, and it would combine two things that uh, Obi loved, dinosaurs and westerns. Um, they pitched that story to RKO, who agreed to produce it with Colonial. Um, so far, so good. Uh, several drafts of the screenplay were written with several writers, including Harold Lamb, Emily Berry, uh, and William Hamilton. Um with a story credit to a guy named Jerry Cady. Um, and uh, so things are looking okay. Um, but uh, once you get into uh, a little later into 1941, um, uh, uh, that's when uh, RKO starts to kind of take it a little more seriously and throws a lot of money at it. Yeah. And this is like uh, just poor Obi. Like they're, they're trying to give him hope. <laughs> So it's like, so basically, movie tickets start kind of dipping. The sales of movie tickets starts dipping low. So RKO is like, hey, we're going to actually advertise uh, Guanji, and they advertised in 1941 as like their most expensive film yet, which wasn't actually true, but it did have a pretty um, substantial budget. I think it was about 552,000. Uh, again, not the most expensive, but was fairly expensive for the time. It was also being advertised as the first dinosaur film in Technicolor. And then they got to a pretty extensive pre-production process. Um, they had done location scouting. They actually had uh, shooting schedules that had been dialed in. 
And then they had enlisted uh, composer Paul Saltel, who basically composed like everything out of RKO. Like, um, but he also did like The Lost World. He did Voice of the Bottom of the Sea, Jack the Giant Killer, yep. The Fly. Um, but uh, he composed actually 12 minutes of the score. Irving Reese was attached to direct with James Craig, Andy Shirley, and Edgar Kennedy, all slated to star in the film. Um, and while all that is happening, O'Brien uh, stayed busy. Um, he made a lot of concept art, and um, uh, he got together with another artist, Jack Shaw, to do some uh, large oil paintings. Um, he drew over 200 storyboards um, for all the effects shots. Uh, he had pr- extensive journals and documents breaking down how each effect uh, shot would be created. Um, uh, in addition to those, he he made these big tabletop dioramas um, with cardboard cutouts um, that would show uh, the layouts of all the miniatures, um, uh, different layers of the visuals. You know where the camera would be and where um, you know if you're familiar with how uh, these guys did the stop motion, it would be like um, you know they would have a background plate, objects in the middle, a foreground plate, like um, and kind of it would lay out all of the, those different layers. Um, you know where the models would be placed. Um, he commissioned uh, glass paintings by um, Juan and Mario Laranaga, um, who who did concept art for a lot of. Um, O'Brien and RKO's films, including King Kong, Son of Kong, um, Marcel Delgado, who I mean, did made models and armatures for tons of um, classic stop motion monster movies, including King Kong and Mighty Joe Young. Um, you know, he built models um, for the Lost World as well, uh, but he made a Guanji model uh, that he considered among some of his best work. Um, and uh, I, from what I understand, there were uh, some test shots done, um, but it's kind of uh, it's it's doubtful that um, the model was ever animated since uh, it was it never got to the stage where it was fully painted. Uh, in early 1942, Arkea was basically in ruin. Uh, the box office returns of Orson Welles' Citizen Kane and the magnific- Magnificent Ambersons were so catastrophic that the studio was basically firing people, hiring new management, they were cutting costs pretty much at every corner. Pretty crazy, um, since those are considered now like two of the best great movies <laughs> ever made. <I> know. <laughs> they oh. pretty much almost bankrupt a whole studio. Uh, um, maybe that's why uh, studios are so risk-averse now, and they just have to check <laughs> off the boxes, but that's a different conversation. Um at the same time, there was basically a, a recent public opinion poll and that showed little interest in Guanji. So, hey, the surveys were in and they weren't great. Um, these things combined led RKO to cancel the production even after spending over, you know, 50 grand. That's incredible, by the way, to think about spending that much money. At in that 1941? Time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. Uh, and then from that point, RKO basically shifted their focus to lower budget production. So like Little Orphan Annie and... Uh, Val Luton's cat, uh, cat people, and those would be low cost, but they would have a guaranteed profit. Um, so there was one final gasp of uh, uh, of life in Guanji in March of 1943, when uh, Sid Rogel, uh, an RKO executive, attempted to resurrect it. Um, he even hired uh, Ruth Rose. Um, she um, was a co-writer on King Kong, Mighty Joe Young, uh, which would come later, but uh, also Son of Kong, to do another pass at the script. 
Uh, and, you know, big wigs at the studio still just weren't convinced um, and uh, uh, wouldn't be completed until um, uh, Ray Harryhausen releases his version in 1969. This was uh, several years after O'Brien ha- had passed away. Um, so we're going to fast forward to 1966. Um, Harryhausen is, you know, the king of special effects films in America at this point. Um, and, uh, he has a very unique relationship with his producer, um, Charles Schneer, who, uh, almost, you know, he had enough clout to basically let Harryhausen kind of do whatever he wanted, which is, you know, you look at other stop motion guys like Jim Danforth and, um, David Allen. I mean, these guys were always struggling to get their passion projects done and they almost never got made. But Harryhausen had a producer on his side that would really kind of make sure that they were always working. It's something that O'Brien, the closest thing O'Brien had to that was Cooper. And um, But, uh, you know, he really didn't have that in his life. Um, 1966, Harryhausen had just done One Million Years B.C. Uh, for Hammer Studios, and um, that was a huge hit. Uh, pop culture phenomenon to this day. I mean, people still know, you know, Raquel Welch in the fur bikini. I mean, iconic film. Uh, so really big movie, and and Ray's convinced that uh, you know to kind of cash in on the success of that project to do another dinosaur movie. You know, our next he decided his next movie should be another dinosaur film. Um, so he uh, is kind of thinking about ideas, and he remembers that uh, you know after. In sometime in the forties, uh, O'Brien gave Ray his copy of the Guanji script and was like, "Here, you know, I don't know, use this as toilet paper or something. I don't know." <laughs> um, and Ray was like, "Oh, well, I have this this script that Obi gave me laying around, and um, you know, maybe as a dedication to him, you know, I can, you know, let's let's try to make this." So uh, he brings that to Schneer, and uh, it's a go. Um, their normal studio was Columbia, who was a little, uh, hesitant due to budgetary reasons, so they, uh, ended up getting, uh, Guanji made at Warner Brothers, um, and they enlisted writers William Bast and Julian Moore to do another pass at the script, um, uh, the O'Brien version, uh, took place in modern day, or 1941, when it was written, um, so, uh, uh, some changes would be, um, you know, they, they took that out of, out of the quote unquote present and set it, uh, uh, in the early 1900s and the, in, and, uh, so it's no longer modern day. And then also some certain things with pacing and characters and dialogue were kind of updated a little bit, punched up, um, to fit the sensibilities of the sixties audiences, um, this poor guy. Uh, so very much to Ray Harryhausen's disappointment, um, due to different rules and regulations with the Writers Guild, O'Brien did not get a story credit on the final movie. So, um, uh, I, uh, I can't just, even... <laughs> yeah, got no. nothing. Um, even the movies that he did get made, like still managed to disappoint. Or like, you know, in, in the case of King Kong versus Godzilla. Kill. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, gosh, um, Guanji was not a box office success, um, when it came out in 1969. Um, I know Ray kind of blames the studio for that because, uh, while they were making the movie, Warner Brothers had switched, uh, ownership 
And so uh, uh, the new regime really didn't have any interest in promoting a dinosaur movie. They did very little for it. Um, but good news is, I mean, because it was on TV so much when people like us were kids and, um, you know, it's, it's become a cult favorite, you know, um, Steven Spielberg, uh, did a, you know, homage to it in Jurassic Park when, you know, the T-Rex comes out and eats the, the Gallimimus, um, and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fairly well regarded. Not G-Fest played it at the Pickwick, uh, a few years ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, even though it, it didn't light up the box office, it's continued to, uh, um, you know, find its audience. Um, and I guess, uh, do you want to do our review and then we can go into some differences between, uh, the two versions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that makes the most sense. Um, well, uh, so Matt, why don't you give us a, a plot synopsis since I've been babbling. <laughs> uh, so basically in Mexico, um, there is a, uh, performer cowgirl, I guess, TJ, uh, was it Breckenridge and she's hosting this rodeo. It's not making a ton of money. Um, she has a former love interest. Uh, his name is Tuck Kirby and he is, is as much of a douche as his name would suggest <laughs> having a name like Tuck. I don't think you could be anything else. Um, but he basically kind of struts in there as a this businessman and, um, all cocky like, and he wants to buy her horse and, and basically, uh, buy her out. And he, uh, he meets kind of this, uh, was it Lope? Yep. The Mexican boy. That's able, he basically is showing them around town and trying to like get him a horse and telling him where to go. Um, eventually what ends up happening, happening is that, um, there's a tiny little horse, which they call, uh, El Diablo, um, that is found by a, a group of people. And they basically bring it to the, to the rodeo with the intention of like, Hey, we're going to show this tiny little thing off. It's going to make us a bunch of money. There's a group of people that are like, Oh, this is going to be the curse of Guanji. And they try to, uh, steal the horse back and release it into this Valley, which is this like hidden, but also cursed place. Uh, one thing leads to another, and there's a scientist who wants to study the horse, who, like, hey, let me take the horse from, from the rodeo, take us back to where you found it, that way we can see what else is there, maybe we can catch other ones, and this actually ends up being this prehistoric Eohippus. Um, from there, when they get into, the, when they actually find the valley, uh, they end up going through there and finding and encountering a bunch of different dinosaurs, and people get eaten. And then, of course, we have the climax where... You know, they do actually capture Guanji, the Allosaurus slash Tyrannosaurus Rex. And in very much a King Kong kind of fashion, you know what happens when you put a caged animal on display? Well, it's going to get loose and terrorize a bunch of people and eat them and then probably die a horrific death. And that is indeed what happens to Mr. Guanji. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, the, that's, 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 that's our setup there. Um, uh yeah, this was uh, my first time watching this in a long time. I mean, I own it. I've had it forever. It's been a long time. Yeah. Um, since I've seen this, yeah. For whatever reason, it's not one of the Harryhausens I replay often. And um, maybe I should, uh, just because, I mean, this this was the first time I put this DVD in, in probably like, I don't know, like 15 years or something. And I, I kind of forgot how... Um, how much I, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, uh, Matt, what did you think? Uh, I, I know you said that you, you 
saw this before. Uh, it's wonderful. I mean, it's it's everything that like as a kid I loved about a, a basic you know monster movie, um, and it has like so it does have some fun character dynamics. Um, Tuck ends up becoming kind of a good guy, even though initially you're like this guy's a piece of crap. Um, and you know the the stop motion, I I, I love it. I mean, you have the Styracosaurus, you got a Pteranodon, uh, you have the poor little elephant that R.I.P. Uh, <laughs> and then the thing, like the thing that that actually struck me was at the end of it, like good lord, Guanji just he burns to death and then gets crushed. Like <laughs> he is on fire for a long time and just screaming in agony. If you're a giant monster or a dinosaur, like in the '60s. In an American film, you're just screwed. Like you're gonna die in one of the worst agonizing ways. And this poor little guy uh, does meet a pretty like it. That actually stuck with me because I was like, man, this guy, all he wanted to do was eat some food, and instead, like he ends up <laughs> dying in like the worst way possible. Uh, but I, it's it's great, and I think it has a lot of charm to it. Um, you know, there's. I think it's actually pretty fun. I think there's a, a nice job of blending the live action stuff with some of the. Like, there's a um, TJ jumps off this like platform into water, and I think they actually did a pretty good job of like blending that together, especially being stop motion. Like, I thought that was a really cool scene. Allosaurus looks looks great. Like, yeah, I love the little snarl that he has constantly. Yeah, uh, yeah. Guanji himself is, I mean, you know, it, it, it's why Harryhausen is so good at what he did, you know. I mean, there's other stop-motion dinosaur movies that he did not do, and, you know, the dinosaurs are often just, they move, but they have no, like, personality to them. Guanji has a personality, the little Eohippus, you know, all of all of his creatures are actual, you know, characters in a way um and uh yeah i mean there's just some great i mean the 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 roping sequence is insane um when you have to think about how you stage something like that in stop motion you know because you have the cowboys that have to lasso something that's not there um, and then you have the stop motion lasso that you know you're animating on the dinosaur. How is that? How does that line up with the real lasso? You know how? I, I mean, and all this stuff needs to be staged and shot on a set, and then Ray has to go and match all the animation to that in real time, frame by frame. Um, it's why the skeleton sequence in Jason and the Argonauts is like the most, one of the most insane special effects ever put on film because it's, it's ridiculous that someone actually did this. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, you know, I, I, the, I, I think if I have, uh, I think this movie is a little slow to start, but once it gets moving, once they're in the valley, the pacing picks up immensely, um, and uh, uh, I, I kind of—I don't know. I've seen people call it boring, but in this movie in particular, I kind of like the kind of uh, slow build of the first act um, because uh, are, are these like the deepest characters ever? No, but they're—they're they're fun to inter to, to watch them interact. 
and um, they have uh, some pretty snappy dialogue, and um, it's uh, it's fun to see them all kind of get established before we enter the actual dinosaur valley. Yeah, th- this is. I mean, the movie's ninety minutes, and you're getting actual characters. I, I don't know. I this is something that like recently, Bird. I've just been. Uh, frustrated with like the modern movie sentiment of like, we're just going to have 25 million characters and none of them are going to be ever developed. Like at least you get some pathos with these. And I think they're all fairly, like they're pretty fun. They have some dynamics. Like I, I enjoyed them. I thought they were very charming. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like that that first act kind of takes its time a little bit and then, and then we, we get into the action. Um, you know, it's not a master class of that kind of storytelling, like you know King Kong, which is this. This is kind of you know the same structure, but but it's still kind of a uh, I don't know. It, it's kind of a, a a style of movie plotting um, that you don't see uh, so much these days. Um, and uh you know I've always said about stuff like the monsterverse and stuff you know I'm I'm I, this is like what I'm looking for it's like these characters don't have to be amazing <laughs> you know they don't have to be deep they don't have to have any you know profound monologues or uh anything like that they just need to be like fun and interesting enough to watch to get me to the monster scenes that's really all I ask for if uh, if this were a monsterverse film, the professor would have been dead in the first act and zipped up in a bag and carried off screen, never yeah, heard yeah. from again. Which, yeah, I mean, talk <laughs> about uh, you know, I mean, that that's another thing. Like, I I I certainly wouldn't expect that character to get killed <laughs> in the last act, but he sure does. Um, it's pretty uh, sweet, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, the the last like twenty minutes of this thing is fire it's yeah i agree and no pun intended (laughs) uh there's a there's sort of a love triangle where um tuck our resident douchebag is you know he's trying to get back with you know tj and there's another person on the in the rodeo that like is also vying for her affection and essentially he gets this guy gets beat up when the little horse is taken, but then he blames it on Tuck on purpose as a way to like kind of get him out of the picture. So you have some of those sort of dynamics going on. At least it makes it interesting, right? Like you have some people to root for and to cheer against. And uh, the scientist is even like, he initially it feels like he has noble intentions, but then he's also willing to exploit whomever to get those to, to get his discovery, so he's also kind of a yeah a jerk face. Yeah, and he's uh, he's more two, almost more two faced because he's like, um, <laughs> you know, he's telling the uh, the the indigenous people, you know, hey, I'll I'll bring you, I'll make sure your horse gets back to the valley, but. We're gonna. I'm gonna follow, but you know, but you know, he he's doing it because he wants to follow them and see what else is in there, see what other kind of discoveries he can make. Um, and so, yeah, everyone's kind of an asshole, but like, it's it's kind of, but it's all fun dynamics, you know. And I, I mean, 
are the characters super likable? I don't know if likable is the word I'd use, but they're they're they had but I I like that. I I I like the that makes them in, more they, interesting to me. They feel a bit more organic in that they right. have motivations that are like believable. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so many of these movies, even even character movies and even characters that we love in a lot of these old monster movies. They're just a hundred percent, you know, the purest of intentions. And, and this is kind of a little bit of a subversion of that where it's like, well, everyone's kind of out for themselves, even at the end. Um, uh, uh, TJ is, you know, cause yeah, <laughs> Tuck is like, well, you know, I'll, what, what if I do buy, uh, you know, or she, she's like, you know, I think I am going to sell, and he's like, oh, great, like, you know, uh, with the money, you know, why don't we settle down? You know, we'll do one last, you know, a few last shows, we'll settle down and maybe have kids. And then once they once they get Guanji, she's like, oh, we're going to go on tour, we're going to make all this money. And he's like, but wait, I thought we were going to, like, get married and have kids and stuff. And she's like, no, <laughs> fuck that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, it, it, it's kind of refreshing to see it you know, a movie where not everyone, a movie made in this time period in this genre where, you know, the characters aren't like goody goodies, you know, Oh, we have to do the right thing at all times. They're, they're kind of all douchebags in a way, but like you yeah, said, like, I, there's an organic quality to that. The, uh, it's funny. Cause Tuck starts out the douchebag and then he sort of like flips it and like initially she's like oh let's go have kids and there was one funny little bit where like i forget exactly how it goes but he's talking about um like going and buying something and she's thinking it's like gonna be a farm and it ends up being like a new business and she gets all mad at him yeah because <laughs> she thought they were gonna buy a house <laughs> and settle down yeah um uh, and then like it ends up being the opposite for her in the end yeah uh and yeah, usually in a movie like this, especially the professor would be like the kindly old man, and he's a—I mean, he—he's a—he—he he is that, but there's like—I don't want to say a darker. There's a more uh, uh, gray, like subcurrent to him, where you know, yeah, he's going to be the nice old man to Lopi and all that, but he's also this guy. Yeah. I thought it was going to be like the island of Dr. Moreau and like start experimenting on the little the little horse like Yeah, yeah. What, he's got this weird vibe where at first you trust him and you think he's this good guy and then it feels kind of sinister by the end of it a little bit. I don't know. I I thought it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he's just uh, you know this is like the rare movie where like the scientist is trying to exploit the animal just as much as anyone else. Um, yeah, stop doing that. Why do people do that? <laughs> um, and then, of course, yeah, I, you know, I love the monster on the loose trope of we've captured the monster and now we're going to see it in this show or some cheesy thing and it's going to break loose and kill a bunch of people. You know, the King Kong thing, we see it in every version of King Kong. Uh, we did we, last year. We just got another great scene like that in uh, Nope. You know uh, that that's one of those things that just never gets old to me. Is like stupid humans trying to exploit <laughs> this f amazing creature, and it kills everybody. 
because that's like it's what we do. It's just so. <laughs> I mean, like it's just such a it, it's such a great metaphor for just everything that we do when we meddle in. Oh, it yeah. really is. Like we don't. It's just, <laughs> Uh, okay, I have I have an important question. Who has a worse death, Emir, Guanji, or Yongari? <laughs> I mean, Yongari has got to be the <laughs> Yongari is the worst one. Uh, that's still even now after all the Ultraman I've seen, that's still like way up there because he just yeah. bleeds out of his ass and <laughs> it's just twitching and everything. He twitches. Twitching to death and oh my gosh! Yeah. Uh, Guanji's is bad. Now the Emir is a little more tragic, just because the Emir has more of a humanoid quality that makes him a little easier for you know me as a human <laughs> to to relate to. Um, whereas Guanji is a dinosaur, so you know it. There's a little bit more distance there, but 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 both all all of these guys didn't ask for this, <laughs> you know. know. Like Yongri uh, kind of just I, wandered into the wrong side of town, uh, but Guanji and the Emir, I mean, those are they were doing nothing wrong, <laughs> you know, and then they're you know put in these awful situations where. The only thing that left for the only way to solve this problem is for them to die. Uh, yeah, I, Guanji's. I, I gotta admit, like it really got to me because he sits there and screams. It it felt like ten minutes, and then they kept panning back to like the humans, and then more of the building fell on top of him, and he was still up and moving. Yeah, no, Guanji just, uh, <laughs> just yeah. like burns to death. Yeah, Guanji, Guanji gets it. Pretty pretty bad, but uh, uh, yeah, there's RIP, that. Guanji. But uh, that's you know that great kind of operatic monster death that you know we like, and that someone like Harryhausen does so well. Um, that you know, I don't know if anyone else were animating this dinosaur, I don't know that we would feel that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I certainly yeah. don't know if I would feel it in if you know if it in you know a. Jurassic Park sequel or something, you know. So, uh, we go to some differences between Obi and Ray's. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, the, a lot of it is actually more with his many writers that from the forties through the sixties has taken a crack at this thing. A lot of it kind of stays the same, but there are some big differences. Yeah, so the original version, which we we talked about, took place took place in the '40s, which was its present day at the time. Um, the character Lopi actually does not exist at all in the original version. That was a specific edition made for the Ray Harryhausen version, um, basically for a character that kids in the audience could identify with. Makes sense. Yeah, that's a weird character because um, like his parents are dead, and he kind of like walks around like selling things and hustling from people in the street, but like, I don't know who, like who he lives with or anything. <laughs> he's like one of the, the, he's like Charlie Brown or something. Like you never, who's taking care of this kid. Yeah. And like, and that just kind of goes back to something that we said earlier, but like even the kids like a bit shady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he's like hustling for water. Yeah. Oh man. It's a, uh, it's a thing. Um, 
So we also have the um, superstitious Romani who they they basically warn against going into the the valley and they chant Quanji. And those are additions into uh, this version of the film. Um, and then in the finished film, the Eohippus is captured pretty much at the beginning. But in the original script, uh, they had not found one when they go into the, their expedition into the valley. So they kind of change that up a bit. I actually like finding it first. Yeah, yeah. I really think it worked really well for this movie. Um, and uh, speaking of the Eohippus, in, the, in all of the v- versions of the O'Brien version, in each version of that script, um, it wasn't like a prehistoric Eohippus, you know, it wasn't a prehistoric creature they were going to find. It was uh, rare miniature horses, which those exist in real life. Um, but Ray's version, I think, was pretty much like, hey, if everything else in this valley that we're going to see... Yeah, is pre- we need them. yeah if everything else yeah. is prehistoric, we might as well use, uh, you know, some kind of prehistoric mammal that's similar to a miniature horse, and that's an Eohippus. So that's another change I like. Um, also in uh, in the uh, original version, um, instead of the, the elephant, Guanji was um, going to fight a, a group of lions. Um, and that story idea would uh, be carried on to... Um, the you know once Guanji gets canned, O'Brien, you know Cooper got back from the war, and then O'Brien did Mighty Joe Young, which is uh, where he brought in Ray Harryhausen, um, and uh, the lion fight was used in Mighty Joe Young, and you know when Mighty Joe Young, when he goes crazy at the you know uh, the the uh, the show that he's forced to be in, he fights a bunch of lions. Um, also carried over from Mighty Joe Young is the. Um, the the lasso sequence, um, which yep. the, the the which is amazing. Then Mighty Joe Young, it's an amazing sequence as well. And here it's uh, kicked up a little bit, even. Um, also, in the original version, Guanji's death is a little more routine. Um, you know, uh, so it is the present day of 1941, um, and Guanji dies when um, I think it's Tuck uh, gets a you know steals a circus truck. And um, like uses it to force Guanji off a cliff. Um, the dying in the burning cathedral uh, is, I think, a way cooler. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But a lot of the other things are similar. There's minor variations. Um, for example, in uh, in the movie that Ray made, Guanji fights a Styracosaur. In Obi's version, it was a Triceratops. Uh, but um, Ray had already done an Allosaurus versus Triceratops fight scene in One Million Years B.C., and he was like, eh, what's a similar dinosaur I can use? So then he did the Stracosaur. Um, and then there's, you know, minor variations in characters and motiv- motivations, um, some character names that are a little different, um, stuff like that. But those are all the, the big ones. Um, now, uh, speaking of the roping sequence... Um, uh, so the the movie was in production for a year and a half, which is crazy, um, uh, especially for a genre film like this back then. Um, and that is because, unlike a lot of the stop motion animators, like I mentioned, Ray had Charles Schneer in his side, who pretty much guaranteed, you know, Ray can do all this. And Ray did everything as a one-man show, uh, which is part of why his movies took so long to make. Um, but with you know a really powerful producing partner, he was afforded that luxury that a lot of other people uh, weren't. Um, 
but uh, out of that year and a half time, that roping sequence alone um, took five months. Um, I have Ray's autobiography, um, An Animated Life, in front of me, and I'm just going to read some excerpts as to just how complicated that roping sequence was. Um, so, uh, and I'm going to jump around a little bit, so uh, pardon me a little bit. Um, but uh, so uh, the big thing is the eye line. You know that's where the actors have to look when they're they're doing the the scene. Um, and so uh, Ray says the question of eye line was easy. Throughout the film, um, I used a monster stick. So basically, a giant stick with a you know just a big pole, <laughs> pretty much um, similar to the stuff that people now in CG movies would look at. Um, uh, now, however, for the roping sequence, I had to devise a moving monster stick that would approximate the movements of the T-Rex, uh, Tyrannosaurus. Um, Guan- Ray says Guanji is an Allosaurus and a T-Rex combined, so that's why he doesn't quite look like either. Anyway, um, uh, the movements uh, uh, had to be approximated at the same time and at the same time, give the impression that the ropes were straining as the characters lassoed a creature. I solved the problem by using an old jeep under which we fixed a 15-foot upright pole. As the jeep had great maneuverability, it was able to get from one point to another with ease, while the stuntmen lassoed the top of the pole, giving the impression of straining ropes. To prevent the ropes from slipping while the stuntmen were actually roping from their horses, the pole had several horizontal spokes near the top, and as an added precaution, we occasionally had a man clinging to the pole to make sure the ropes attached themselves. In addition, I did, I did my usual trick of acting out the actions off-camera and shouting to the stuntmen during filming, um, uh, shouting at the stuntmen and the actors where the creature would be and where he was about to go. Um, so, okay, so that's how they get the actual roping done. Now, uh... With with the rear projection method, you know, I mentioned earlier and how they block and stage and layer these animation things. Um, so uh, so Ray has to project that footage onto a plate, and in front of the plate would be where he's animating the model and going frame by frame. Um, so uh, this next part is is just making things even more complicated. Uh, he says, You may say, where is the Jeep on the rear, produ- rear projection plate? Surely the Jeep is too large to be hidden, even by such a creature as a Tyrannosaurus. Of course, the Jeep was too big to hide behind Guanji, so as he's animating. Uh, so to remove it, along with the monster stick, I, had to sh- I-, I shot the live action in two halves. Uh, first, I photographed the right side of the frame, showing the cowboys lassoing and the rope straining, whilst in the left-hand side of the frame was the jeep and the monster stick. Ke- keeping the camera in exactly the same place, we then photographed on a separate reel of film the remainder of the cowboys roping and straining on the left, with the jeep and pole on the right of the frame. And then back in England... The labs printed and combined the two pieces of film, and by means of a split-screen process, all that remained on the plate was the cowboys on either side, with their respective ropes seemingly suspended in midair. 
This eliminated the jeep and the stick. The real ropes were now at the correct height on both sides, so that when I came to animate, I placed the model of Guanji in front of the split-screen join and matched the actual ropes on the rear projection with miniature copper wires around his neck. So... Can, can we just take some a minute to, like... <laughs> that is That is craftsmanship. That is... <laughs> That is not working a CG artist to the bone and paying them nothing for 80 hours a week until they, you know, put some cartoonish looking thing on the screen. This is, and I, I don't mean to say that, like, for people that are working, I actually feel bad for, for yes. people working in the <laughs> CG industry. But I mean, like, this is, this is the thing that I love about uh, stop motion and tokusatsu is the, the level of craftsmanship that often just doesn't get talked about enough, how and, much work had to be done. It, well, it's also like the solutions these guys find to these problems. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know how, how do you, how do you even think <laughs> of that? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, like if, if someone were like, Oh, Hey, we got to shoot this scene, but we have this problem. Uh, like how do how do you get rid of uh, how are you going to animate this in front of a giant jeep with a stick and what are you going to do? My brain would not be like, oh, let's just film it in halves and combine the halves and like you you don't like that is improvisation. It's ingenuity. It's creative thinking. It's uh, it's problem solving. Um, there's so much just. The complexity of of that, on top of just the basic ask of like, okay, stop, cowboys have to lasso a stop motion dinosaur. That enough is stressful enough. <laughs> um, but no, I mean the, that sequence alone—that's five months, and it's as far as I'm concerned, one of the most impressive stop motion scenes I've seen. And there, there's so much. Just the scene itself is exciting because they rope him, they lose him. They rope him, he breaks free again. And at the end of the day, that's not even how they get him. Uh, it's, you know, he gets knocked out by, you know, this falling rock. And that's where, uh, it, later in the book, Ray's like, the one thing that I just didn't have money to do was, like, animate Guanji, you know, falling. Yeah, and, the, yeah the You know, prop, so they use yeah. this very stiff, like, uh, uh, <laughs> doll of him and ray's just like he hates that scene and i, I get it <laughs> but yeah that roping scene's incredible I, just like I, I did so i I didn't love the the movie but like mad god there there is something um the the stop motion work in that is incredible like beetlejuice like there's there's so much creativity in the in those kinds of things and like we're finally going to get Primeval's getting a release, yeah. so like I'm actually really looking forward to that. Yep. But I just appreciate the work that was done, and the, like it, it's it's incredible to watch. You're you're watching something that we just don't get to see now for the yeah. most part. I, I and I miss stop motion as a special effect. Like stop motion exists. There's a lot of great stop motion films being done. You know, uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Um, you know, Leica Studios. Um, Ardman, you know, uh, they're keeping the the art form alive. Tim Burton, you know, he's he's done a lot of stop motion animated films. Henry Selleck, guys like that are keeping it alive. But I miss where it's like, okay, 
you have a movie and then you need a creature. How are we going to bring the creature to life? Stop motion. One guy that actually does this um, is uh, Wes Anderson. I don't know um, uh, the, his new movie, Asteroid City. You know, there's a scene with an alien and it's a stop motion alien. You know, it's like, that's cool. Someone's doing it. But uh, yeah, I really miss that. Um, uh, but uh, I know, Matt, you mentioned Guanji's roar earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so tell us some... about the roar. Okay, this is frankly when when I learned this, it's it's kind of upsetting. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, Guanji's roar was the sound of a camel slobbering and then slowed down and electronically altered. Not what I thought. That's like weird. that was not where my head would have gone. <laughs> that is very upsetting. Um, some other other trivia we have for this um actress gina golan was very obviously (laughs) dubbed uh due to her heavy israeli accent um that that you can definitely tell reminded me of like um watching some of the italian horror films that are oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah where where uh where they shot them without sound and then dubbed them over in different languages yeah yeah Yeah, no that that makes sense um then I'll uh, I'll do the next uh, two pieces we got here. Um, so as as many people have noticed, uh, I'm assuming you also uh, as uh, throughout the movie, Guanji's color alternates uh, between gray, blue, brown, green, even like purplish at times. Um, so I mentioned just the workload of stop motion here. Um, I mean, just the roping sequence took five months. So, I mean, combine that with the rest and you got a lot of stop motion, uh, uh, to animate. (laughs) Um, so, uh, just due to time restrictions, um, uh, the reason Guanji's color changes so often, um, uh, depending on, you know, where, he is in the film, whether he's in Mexico, whether he's in the Valley and so on. It's because, uh, you know, Ray had to do so much animation that he didn't have time to develop, um, as many lighting tests for the film. So, you know, to, to do it, you know, you do a test, uh, to make sure the lighting is right. And, you know, there's no digital cameras back then. So after that, you send it over to a lab, you get the film back, you run it back and make sure the lighting looks good. If it doesn't, you got to do it again and have it sent back, have it, have the film sent, develop sent back and so on and so forth. Uh, there just wasn't enough time, uh, to do that with all the animation he had to do. Um, and so, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he, he's not really happy with that part of the movie. I know at one point he said one day, you know, with modern post-production technology, he would, you know, think about, you know, getting, you know, can we do a version where Guanji's one color or whatever? Um, I don't know. I kind of like the weird colors, though. Like, when Guanji's purple, I kind of like that. Like, it looks weird. It it, it looks yeah, like... Yeah, I like it, too. Yeah, it, it adds to him having, you know, a personality other than, like, he's not just a, di- a giant dinosaur. He's Guanji, and so... It looks, you know, it makes him feel more unique that way. Um, the other thing I liked um, is just like it, the snarl and the lip curls and like the scratching of his face. And yeah, he, he he really does have a lot of personality. Yeah, and I feel like some of those movements are probably homage to O'Brien too. Like, uh, like you know, that's what the T Rex in King Kong does. You know, he does that thing where he scratches his ear and 
all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, just little things like that really add to these um, these creatures to where they don't just feel like an animated dinosaur. They they feel interesting. Um, and then uh, my last bit of trivia here is a, a story that I just thought was was f- kind of cute and and fun. Um, uh, Ray's daughter Vanessa, you know. Growing up, and your father is the great Ray Harryhausen, who is a one-man stop-motion machine, um, is probably pretty interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, when she was about four or five years old, uh, you know, she 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 grew attached to the Guanji puppet, the Guanji model. Like, you know, uh, like a little girl might get attached to a Barbie doll. You know, she would take it to bed and sleep with it and take it everywhere she she went. Like, it was more or less became her favorite toy <laughs> at some point. Um, and uh, there was one day when uh, Ray's wife, Diana, was out with, you know, uh, Vanessa. They were shopping. An old lady asked what was, uh, you know, what Vanessa was, like, holding, you know, carrying around. Like, I'm assuming just, like, you know, if you when you were a kid, or you know, if you're out with your kids, and you know, you see like a nice stranger. Oh, uh, you know, what do you have there, little one? And you know, it's a doll or whatever. Um, but yeah, this old lady was like, "What you know? Oh, what do you have, little girl? Like, what are you what are you holding?" And it was <laughs> it was the Guanji puppet, and she was the this lady was like shocked that you know this. Uh, this family just let her daughter walk around with this like ugly dinosaur thing instead of you know a Barbie doll or whatever. Um, Which is pre- amazing. That's pretty rad, though. <laughs> I mean, you know, imagine you know if if you know your your dad's a stop motion animator and you know he he's cool enough to let you like oh I'm done with this one you know you can have it <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's Guanji, man. Uh, yeah, I, I, the, yeah, this is one that I I was really happy to revisit. Um, and uh, yeah, I know um, you know this is this this one is kind of a uh, one that we looked at and we said like, how have we gone this long without doing Guanji? <laughs> and and here's Guanji. And and yeah, I mean, I I think you know I th- I think in the next few months we're gonna try and. S- knock a little bit more of those uh, no-brainer, why haven't we done this yet uh, <laughs> movies. Um, and I, I know that we're, we're going to uh, dip uh, a lot more into the Harryhausen catalog, too, which... Um, which uh, I'm looking forward to. Yeah, which and, and a lot of those you haven't seen. And, and that's... Ray, Harryhausen stuff is like, that's always a guy that like I'm always excited to like introduce new people to because it's just... I don't know. The, those movies are just so special, um, uh, and yeah, this this is another great one. I, I know I, I mentioned this months ago, but yeah, when they had that uh, Kong stop motion e- exhibit at uh, Eastern Michigan, um, you know, um, uh, they had some uh, raised drawings for Guanji on display, and it was just and you know we mentioned War Eagles. There was some War Eagle stuff. It's just like it's so cool to to the to see some of that history and you know anyone that has an opportunity to see stuff like that in person because stuff gets exhibited like uh i i would urge you to go um and i know harryhausen's people want to take a lot of his artifacts like on tour and to museums and 
different places. So, uh, you know, it would be cool to see, like, uh, actual Guanji, you know, in person one day. Um, but until then, we just have the movie to watch. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's cool that it got made. It's It's too bad that more of O'Brien's projects you know, haven't been resurrected. I mean, even today, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much corporate, modern corporate Hollywood I'd want meddling in some of these, but, you know, you you think, you know, everyone's like, oh, studios are out of ideas and this and that, and it's like, man, I'm sure if you call up O'Brien's estate and look through <laughs> some stuff, you, you'll find tons of cool ideas. Um, but at least one of them actually made it to screen in a non-bastardized format, you know. Uh, when you have King Kong versus Godzilla, Beast of Hollow Mountain, I mean, stuff like that isn't how that should have happened. <laughs> so, Yeah, it's... Uh, uh... For for those who were wondering, and I'm the bird, this probably isn't you, but there are some uh, Guanji X Plus slash Star Ace released a couple. Mm, I've Guanji I have seen figures. those. They're pretty sweet, actually. Yeah. They did, uh, they, they're putting out a um, so they they released the, the the vinyl figure, which you can get for a couple hundred bucks still. They're also putting out the same kit, but you have to assemble it yourself, and I think it's like half that. It's like a hundred bucks, but mm. it's pretty sweet. So are X plus and star ace the same? Like what? Yeah. I think like the deal with that is X plus sort of makes the, basically the same manufacturer makes uh, the figure, I but see. then gets distributed differently. I believe that's okay. how that works, but I, yeah, I know the, yeah. um, yeah, I know I the, be wrong on that. yeah, I know the X plus guy, um, uh, said that like he 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 likes Harryhausen mon- monsters as much as you know Godzilla or Ultraman and Gamera and like he he's really wants to do them justice and yeah I'm not a collector guy but um, you know just the pictures I see online they've done at this point they've done tons of Harryhausen monsters and they they all look great I mean if I was a collector I would probably be getting some of those um, they're well, they're they, all um, really good. They did the Allosaurus from One Million Years BC, which is also pretty freaking sweet. Have yeah. you seen that? Yeah, yeah. They so. they've done like all the the monsters from like the Sinbad movies. They've done a lot of stuff, and yeah, it's all pretty awesome looking. And, it's it it is really cool. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm um, a huge you know I, I'll always uh, talk up anyone that is an ambassador of. Uh, you know, letting the the American monsters hang with the Japanese ones. You know, <laughs> you know the fandoms on you know whether it's stop motion fans or kaiju fans are you know s- some people just get weird about it. And you know, I say the more the merrier. I mean, uh, these monsters are just as cool as any of the Toho monsters, in my opinion. So you're gonna get you're gonna lose one of our you know twelve yeah, listeners right. because of that comment. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's cool though that uh like even um I for, I don't you might know. I don't I don't remember what company has been doing the tricycle figures, but they did one of the Harryhausen Cyclops. Yeah, it's uh it's M1. Yeah, I was like that's cool. <laughs> yeah, um, they they make a lot of other other cool stuff. They act, um there's also uh a 
I think they were. So I don't know if it was M one or not, but there's a uh, Gargantua's uh, like motorcycle now. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I saw sweet. there's a Frankenstein uh, like bike or something. I don't know. There's all yeah. There, there, there's a Matango one. There's all kinds of crazy things in there. Yeah, um, but this this uh, just getting back to Guanji, like th- this was it was a really really great experience. I actually watched it with um, Sarah and Landon, so that was fun. Um, and you know, we got a kick out of it. So like, it's, it's a fun 90 minute movie that brought me back to my childhood and reminded me of TNT and monster vision and cable television yep. and yep. simpler times. Um, <laughs> oh, I guess we got to do ratings. How many, uh, oh, how many, how many morally gray, <laughs> uh, kindly scientists do you want to give Guanji? Uh, four out of five. There's, I mean, there's definitely better movies out there, but like, I, it, it's a really, it's really fun. I yeah, really I'm gonna it. go four out of five too. I mean, I, I mean, I, I've enjoyed this, this rewatch, and it's, it's a movie I should revisit more. Um, kind of like what I said about them. It's like I don't watch it a lot, but whenever I do, I'm like, this is really awesome. <laughs> um, and and yeah, Guan, this, it's, it's, this movie is like comfort food. You know, it's like being wrapped in a warm blanket. Um, it's, it's just a really good, you know, just relax, you know, and wind down movie. And, um, yeah, I, anyone that hasn't seen it, uh, I mean, I, I, I say, check it out. It's, it's well worth checking out. Um, and that's Guanji. So, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, uh, we're going to get more into Harry Housen stuff, like I said. So, uh, stay tuned for more of that as well as our normal shenanigans um uh all right anything uh anything you want to add no man all right well we will sign off thanks for listening folks goodbye thank you for listening to the kaiju transmissions podcast please take a moment to rate and review us on itunes podbean and stitcher make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes you can also check us out on twitter at kt underscore podcast you can check us out on instagram and facebook at kaiju transmissions and you can email us at kaiju transmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments and we will see you next time